had an introduction last week. We looked at the church at Ephesus. Today, we're going to be looking at, at, at a wonderful, wonderful church. Now, you have to understand, when we say it's a wonderful church, it's a wonderful church in God's eyes, okay? But it is not a wonderful church in the eyes of the world. If you were to uh, see a church like Smyrna, and you look at it from the perspective of the world, what you would find is a church that's broke, a church that's undergoing persecution, a, a church in, 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 in deep, deep poverty, and so the world would look at this kind of a church, and, a church, and the world would say, you know, I don't want to be part of that thing, you know. I don't want anything to do with that church. Man, they, they, the paint's peeling, the grass needs cutting, uh, the preacher's boring. Well, you may say that anyway. Uh, and all those kind of things. But from God's perspective, when, when God looks at this church, people, out of all the churches in Revelation, I'm not God but I think he likes this church. And I think God smiles on this church. And I think we need to discover why. And then we need to ask ourselves, could we possibly be that? Or how could we become that? I don't know about you, but I want the smile of God on us. Amen? I want God to smile on Tom, and I want God to smile on our staff, your staff. I want God to, I want God to be, be pleased when he comes in on Sunday that he doesn't see a lot of, may not see a lot of frills and a lot of fancy things, um, but he sees genuine people. Uh, I hope, you know, when he comes, he doesn't mind empty seats like preachers do. Uh, but I want him to be happy and smile. So there's some things here that I think we can get from it, Okay. Well, let's stand in honor of God's Word, and chapter 2, going to read through verses 8 through 11, and probably won't take us but about 10 minutes. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last, who was dead and has come to life, says this, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but notice what's inserted there, but you're rich. And the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you're going to be tested and you're going to have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Oh, dear people, dear Indian Springs, if we could take that last sentence and make it the, the motto of our church, be faithful unto death. And we would, since we're in Arkansas, we'd say, bring on the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Father, I, I long to be a Smyrna. I long to be crushed and to give off fragrance. The thing I think we must recognize, Father, that that requires some pain in our life and we don't like it. It requires us to be a little less in the eyes of the world than some want to be. And we have to decide whether, whether we'd be 
perhaps big in the eyes of the world or whether we would be delighted to be sweet in the eyes of you, our Father. Help us today as we walk through this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, gang, be seated and keep your Bibles open, okay? Now, if you were a courier who was uh, taking the letters of Jesus that came through John, what you would do is you would leave Ephesus. I think we got a map. Hopefully, it'll come up there. See the map there? Well, the letters were written on the Isle of Patmos. Last week, we talked about Ephesus. And then from Ephesus to Smyrna, you're looking at about 35 miles north. And what the courier would do is he would, after he dropped off the first letter, he would walk those 35 miles and he would come to a town of Smyrna. Smyrna was about, at that time, 200,000. It's a town that's uh, in the city uh, called the city of Izmar in Turkey today of about 300,000, okay? Let me tell you one thing that I, I enjoy about these letters. When you read the letters, Jesus always connects something, some of the things he wants to say to the church, okay? He always connects something circumstantial in the city with, to the, with the letter. Anybody know what the word Smyrna means? Well, it means myrrh. How many of you know what myrrh is? Okay. Some of you are scared. I'm not going to call on you, okay? <laughs> myrrh is used three times in the Bible. It's used with reference to Jesus' death. Myrrh is a, is a fragrance. Uh, it was used in burial. It had a sweet fragrance to it. But the, the key about myrrh is this. To release the fragrance, the fruit had to be crushed. And to get most of the fragrance... The sweeter fragrance, the more the crushing was required. Now, gang, chew on that for just a minute. Jesus is commending. He really has nothing bad to say about this church here. He, he's wanting to encourage the church. He's trying to help them have confidence and courage. But he's saying to them, for you to be what you're supposed to be, then you have to be crushed. Smyrna was the crushed church. But it was the church of fragrance, and he's trying to encourage them, okay? Let me give you some, maybe some interesting, it's not the main part of what Jesus is trying to do here, but let me kind of give you some interesting tidbits, okay? Uh, the first church we looked at was Ephesus, remember? And you remember what I said to you about Ephesus? Uh, if you were to pick out a church that had power, Ephesus was it. If you wanted to pick out a church that was in, Ephesus was in, Okay? Uh, it was a very prominent church. We don't even know how Smyrna got started. We don't know who started it. It's not mentioned in the Bible other than here. So we don't know anything about this little old crushed church. We know all about Ephesus. It's written about twice. Uh, prominent men were there. John had a ministry there. Timothy had a ministry there. Paul had a ministry there. But if you remember when we were talking about Ephesus, we said that Ephesus was no more because Ephesus lost their love. Remember, strong in doctrine. They had their act together doctrinally. They, they were able to discern that which is between uh, right and wrong. They, they, they had all of that kind of ability. But there is, if you go to Ephesus today, there is no church there. Why? Because they, in their doctrine, they lost their love. But if you go to Ismer, or Ismar, however it's pronounced, you know what you would find? You would find a church. In fact, of all of these seven churches, 
This church at Smyrna is the only church that is alive today. And so what I want you to understand is this, that persecution and pressure and poverty can never kill a church. But losing love will kill it every time. Can I make that personal to you? You can be strong and dogmatic in your doctrine, folks, and you ought to have doctrine. You can be very strong in your belief of what the Bible says about salvation being a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But if you don't have love along with it, guess what? You die. But the world and persecution and poverty and tribulation and distress and being hated by the world because you stand on purpose and principle will never, ever kill a church. One more tidbit. Smyrna was a free city, which means that even though it was under Roman rule, Smyrna had some freedom. She could kind of do what she pleased. Smyrna was the first to erect a temple to Caesar, Smyrna was called the crown of Asia, and the reason Smyrna was is because in Smyrna there was a hill, Pagos it was called. At the top of the hill, there was this, what looked like a crown. And on top of the hill at the crown were temples to to pagan gods, okay? Well, when Jesus immediately talks about the crown of life, guess what? They knew what Jesus was talking about. And I don't want to read too much into it, but let me kind of throw out something you can chew about a little bit after church, okay? Maybe what Jesus is doing is kind of challenging them a little bit. Hey, gang, you want the crown of the world or do you want the crown of life? I want to tell you, I believe that's a valid question to Indian Springs this morning. Do we as a church, do we want to be popular? Do we want to have wealth and all of that? Do we want to resemble the world and be like the world? Do we want to be a social club? Or do we really desire, at the end of it all, when the sun sets and the dust settles and the curtains close, do we really desire, dear church, to have that unfading crown of glory, the crown of life? They knew what he was talking about when he wrote the letter. Now, before we break down some of the verses, let me kind of just share this with you. There'll always be pressure on the the faithful, okay? There'll always be. The church in America, while we don't feel it like the church in Egypt and other places, Asia, India, and all those places, who are really undergoing persecution, many of them losing their lives, okay? I believe that the church in the United States will always feel some of the pressure, and I actually think it's going to get worse for us, okay? I mentioned in the first service, I'm not sure it's going to really affect my lifetime, but my son and my daughter, I think it's going to affect them. I guarantee you, I believe that with religious liberty being attacked today by a liberal culture, an ungodly culture, uh, I believe it's going to affect their lifestyle, okay? There will always be pressure on the faithful. Some of the pressure will be direct, Some of it will be indirect. Yet what I want you to know is that in every letter, and especially in this letter, Jesus says, I know. 
okay? God knows not just what we're going through. God knows what we're about to go through, and God says be faithful. And at the conclusion of it all, there'll be many victory wreaths. The diadem goes to him. But, beloved, I want to tell you, you, Daddy, you be faithful. In fact, Dad, next week's Father's Day. Let me just jab you today. We're raising a fatherless generation, and yet some of the fathers are in the home, you see. But they're detached. They're caught up in their own world, doing their own thing their own way. They're not daddies to kids. And we're raising a fatherless generation. But those of you who claim Christ, those of you that are trying to walk with Jesus, some of you that are finally getting your act together, can I say to you, at the end of it all, there's a Stephanos, there's a victory wreath that'll be given to you, that you stayed faithful unto death, all for the glory of God. There'll come a day, I believe, men, and ladies, I don't want to discard you at all. There'll be a day when the smile of the Lord Jesus will be given to you because you stayed faithful in the face of pressure, in the face of perhaps of even persecution. So let me give you a statement. You can read it there, and then we'll move on. Faith is not just an initial gift that is received for salvation. It is that. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Faith is just not an initial gift. It is that. But faith is a sustaining grace that is lived in life. Beloved, I want to tell you, I've mentioned this to you a lot lately because it seems like God stirs my heart more and more about it. I'm so glad that, that when I die, I'm going to heaven and I'm ready to go. I mean, I'd like to see my granddaughter get married, see what kind of jerk she marries, you know, and all that kind of stuff. I'm not, I want to see all that, you know. Uh, but I'm not scared about dying, you know. I'm ready, I'm ready to, to go. Uh, and that's precious. But I want to tell you, there's something good about this being a Christian today. That, that there's something good about getting up on a Monday when you want to quit five times and uh, know that Jesus knows and that Jesus walks with you, you know? Isn't it good to know that the imputed righteousness of Christ has been deposited into your account? Hey, isn't it good, dads, to know that the power of God is there for you to be a man of God? in this world that's so opposed to God. Isn't it good moms to be light when everything you see and read and look around and observe is black, huh? You see? That's what God does. It's all because of his grace. Well, I want you to look at verse 9. The first thing I want to talk to you about a little bit is the comfort that he gives. Look at Look at verse 9. Notice he begins with I know, and then there's a couple other I knows. It's, it's kind of understood, but they're there uh, nonetheless. I'll read that into it. I know your tribulation, and I'm reading in here, I know your poverty, but you're rich, and I know the blasphemy by those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan, okay? I know. I know, I know. Aren't you glad that God is omniscient? Aren't you glad today, dear people, that God is all-knowing? 
Aren't you glad that God is not limited in any way? He's not limited in knowledge. He's not limited in time. He's not limited in space. He's not limited in power. Aren't you glad that God knows everything about you and everything you're going through right now and everything that you're going to go through tomorrow? If I didn't know God was omniscient, I don't know how I could live. I don't know how I could smile in my pain. I don't know how I would have the courage to face tomorrow with some of the pains that come with tomorrow. But knowing that God is omniscient, that God is eternal, that God lives in the eternal present, that God has already seen it because in his mind it has already happened, gives me confidence, gives me courage. And the folks in Smyrna needed to know that because they were undergoing some very severe distress. By the way, it's written in the perfect tense of the verb, which simply means that, that when it happened, it continued. So when he knew it, it continues until eternity. Aren't you glad that God is an omniscient God? Huh? Well, notice what he says to them. I know your tribulation. In other words, I know that you're a crushed fruit, is what he's saying. The word means pressure. In fact, it actually means dis, uh, severe pressure, aggressive pressure. We might say distress, okay? This church lived in a community that was big for Rome. No doubt there, Caesar was Lord. And yet there were a group of citizens who found a new allegiance, that their loyalty was not to Caesar, but another Lord, the one true God. And they refused to acknowledge Caesar. They stood against their government. And because of that, they suffered deeply. Uh, they didn't have jobs to go to like you're going to go to on Monday because they were outcasts. Most of them didn't have the kind of food. Can you imagine, parents, getting up in the morning and knowing that you had little mouths to feed and you go to the cupboard and the cupboard was bare? That, that's kind of what's going Jesus says, listen, I know this. I know your tribulation. I, I, I know that you're crushed. Secondly, he says, I know your poverty. I, I know your cravings. There's two words in the New Testament for poverty. Uh, the, the main one, the word that's used here is a word which means extreme poverty. It's a word that carries, it has a connotation of, 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 of begging. So the picture is that, they're, that they're, it's not only just a lack of necessities, but these folks are begging for whatever they got, okay? I don't, you, you've read about, I'm sure, uh, my dad was one of the guys that went through the Great Depression. And I remember my dad telling me, he said, you know, it was so bad, none of us had anything during the Great Depression. Um, Wayne, you weren't alive then, were you? Okay. Um, he said, you know, it was amazing. He used to tell me as a kid, he said it was amazing. He said, when it came time for supper, people would just show up. He said, we didn't have anything other than a big pot of soup. And uh, about supper time, people would just show up. They didn't know who they were and never seen them before, but they would just come in and sit down. And he said, Mama would, would dip her ladle and dip soup into a bowl and give them some bread, and they would eat, and then they would walk away and we'd never see them again. That's what the great... Listen, the wording here is worse than the Great Depression. But isn't it interesting? Jesus says, 
you're rich. Did you catch that? They didn't even have a spoon to sip soup. And the world looked at this church as a failure. But the Lord Jesus Christ said, oh, man, dudes, you're rich. Isn't that incredible, young folks? Now, listen, we have a, we have a hard time evaluating riches, don't we? I mean, think about it. To, to, to say you're rich or to say you're poor, you have to have some kind of standard of measurement, don't you? Well, when you read the Bible, there's only two kind of standards of measurement here. You either have the world's perspective or you have the Bible's perspective. That's why we admonish and challenge you from time to time to have a biblical worldview, and we're told that most Christians today, and I, and I believe they're Christians, okay, actually do not have a biblical worldview. When they, when they define the doctrine statement of their life, when they try to live their life, make decisions of their life, and try to make decisions to raise their kids, what they do is go the way of the world instead of the way of the Bible. There's only two perspectives on how to evaluate anything, either the world's perspective or the Bible's perspective. Jesus which is the biblical perspective, told this church that was so desperately poor, ah, you're rich. Incredible, huh? And then Jesus says, I know your slander, your contempt. You see, while Christianity was under the umbrella of the Jewish religion, uh, Rome gave Jews a certain measure of freedom. But as time began to move on, Christians, people began to realize Christianity wasn't like Jewish religion at all. Man, there was an allegiance to, to this guy called Jesus. And the Jews rejected Jesus. To this day, they don't believe the Messiah has ever come, see? And so when it began to step outside the umbrella, what Rome expected was that Christianity or Christians to bow the, the knee to Rome, and they refused to do that. They did what you and I have to do in an increasingly darker culture. They had to stand upon the principles of the Word of God. And let me just tell you, I, as we do that, then we're going to get labeled, okay? Just expect it. As we do that, we're going to be hated. We'll be called, you name it. And now we talked a little bit about that last week, right? But they did it. They stayed true. For many of them, it costs them their lives. For many people in the world today, it's costing them their lives. One of these days, it may cost us our lives. And the question is, are we willing to die for Christ? I remember I was preaching a message uh, seven months ago now, maybe a year ago, and I kind of brought up that idea. If someone walked through the door and have a gun and say, okay, Christians, uh, you're going to die. The rest of you can go. Uh, who, would, who would stay? And I remember Daryl. Where's Daryl? Daryl stood up and said, kill me. Well, at least Daryl will stay. You know, would you? See, that's how tough it was. Let me give you an example. Back then, in 155 A.D., the bishop of Smyrna was a guy called Polycarp, okay? He was told that he had to declare Caesar as Lord or he would die. Ultimately, he did die. He, 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 he was burned at the stake, okay? Here's what he said. Eighty and six years have I served him. He never did me any injury. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? And he stood before all of those folks, and he stood up and he said, I am a Christian. Well, he was threatened with fire, and here's what he said. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and is then extinguished, but you're ignorant of the fire, of the coming judgment, and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Bring forth 
what you will. Why would he say that? Because he knew that ultimately the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life was worth anything that might come upon him in this world because the next world is so much better. When you think about it, dear people, For many, many people, in fact, the majority of people, this is the best they got. For those of us who claim the name of Jesus, those of us who have been saved by grace, this is the worst we got. We got something better coming. Polycarp understood it, and he accepted it, okay? All right, before we move on and close it all down, let me give you a a little admonition, okay? When you, as a believer, face tribulation, when you face persecution, perhaps poverty and pressure, there's one truth that I think for Polycarp was true. And I think there's one truth that carries us through. Look, look at verse 8. I, I, that's, this is important. What carries us through whatever tribulation or pressure might come? To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. What carries us through? He's the first and the last. He was dead. He is alive. Beloved, listen to me. Before it all began, guess what? He was there. After it's all said and done, guess what? He's there. In between the beginning and the end, when all of the junk and the pressure and the problems and the persecution and perhaps even all the poverty of the world come, guess who's there? Jesus Christ, the first and the last. Chapter 1, verse 18 says, he says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, who is, who was, who is to come. And I submit to you, that's good enough for Indian Springs Baptist Church. Well, let me wrap it up. Look at verse 10. Let me give you the courage he gives to them. You can read that verse. What he tells them, basically is, hey, gang, indeed, it's bad. <laughs> I mean, he's not being negative. He's just being truthful, right? It's bad. It's going to get worse. You're about to be tested even more severely, but don't fear here, okay? Testing's limited. We don't know what 10 days mean. There's been a lot written. It's an interesting study. What do the 10 days mean? Uh, let me just tell you, I don't have a clue, okay? Yeah, I don't have a clue. But i tell you what I do know. If, it's, if Jesus says 10 days... That means that in Jesus' mind, he knew, and there's limits, there's boundaries. That's one thing we all can agree. What the 10 days mean, I'm not sure, but I know there's a beginning and then there's an end. You know why I know that? Because he says it here, and he's sovereign. Those of you that are in Sunday school, we're going through the book of Job, aren't we? Buzzing in our church about Job. If you're not in Sunday school class, I want to encourage you. Find you a class, okay? If you need a class, let me know. Don's got too many in here. You can go to mine, okay? You need to be in a Sunday school class. That's what our model is. That's what we build around a small group. You know know why? Because it's there where we build discipleship. We're going through the book of Job, and if there's one thing we've learned about Job is while we may not understand why all this happened, he never really knew. We know that God's sovereign, and God allowed some some, uh, freedom to Satan. It was a delegated authority. It was delegated in time. It was delegated in pressure, see? 
Well, that's what he's saying here. We don't know what the 10 days mean, but we know it's contained. It's contained through the sovereignty of God. And we can accept that. Notice Jesus issues a call to them. Be faithful unto death. Now, gang, listen, the one thing we can be is faithful and obedient. And like I said earlier, we may not be the prettiest. We may not be the biggest and the baddest. We may not have everything the world thinks is important. But I'll tell you one thing we can be, and one thing we must be. We must be the faithfulest. And yes, you're right. I told the early service, that isn't even a word. But it sure fits. <laughs> we can be the faithfulest. We can be the obedientest. That's not even a word either, probably. That means I can say, unto death, dear Jesus, I will stand up for you, and I'll stand with my brothers and sisters as I try to represent you in this world. At least there's one thing we can be. We can be that. It's like he said, why would you even want the crown of Smyrna, the crown of Asia, when you can have the crown of life? And then he, he closes, hey, if you have an ear now, listen up. Listen up, listen up. Got an ear, listen. The overcomers, never going to have to worry about the second death. What is the second death? Well, in Revelation 20, 14, it's called the lake of fire. It is called hell, okay? Now, sometimes what you're going through, dear people, I know it must feel like hell, but it's not, okay? You can't even begin to imagine. Let me tell you, let me, if you don't know Christ today, if you're not sure that if you died, you go to heaven, if there's a, if there's a little bit of a question about where you spend eternity, listen, let us help you with that. Because as bad as this world may be, you can't even begin to imagine what the lake of fire is going to be like. You can't even begin, young people, to imagine what hellfire is going to be like. And if I were you, I'm not telling you what to do, but if I were you, I wouldn't let the sun settle, set till I got that issue settled, you know? So give us a call. We'll talk to you. If it's midnight or one or two, call Don, okay? Now you call us. Because if you walk away here convicted about where you're going to spend eternity and you don't have that issue settled, you need, you need God's Word. We, we need to pray the Holy Spirit begins His work in your heart that He might help you understand what regenerate, what conversion is, you see. Well, let me summarize and then we're, we'll be out of this place, okay? First thing we've got to remind ourselves in this letter is that Jesus is bigger than life. You there? He was, he was there before. Jesus is bigger than death. He's thereafter. Isn't that comforting? Jesus knows your suffering. You know why? Because he suffered. He was tempted in all points just like us, yet without sin. He understands what you're going through. He knows what you're going to be going through. He calls us to be faithful unto death. Why? Because he was. He promises his people life. Why? Because he lives. Because he lives you too shall live. And that's worth closing a sermon on, isn't it? Father, we love you. God, I, I thank you that one thing we see here, though we be crushed, all we do is give off the fragrance of Christ. 
And, in, and, and apparently, according to this letter he wrote, uh, the more we're crushed, the sweeter. Even when we think we can't manage and don't, can't live and we don't see any out, God help us to know the more the crushing, the sweeter the aroma. And it all points to he who died upon a cross for sin. Maybe, Father, this morning, even as we just discussed a letter about persecution in the persecuted church, maybe your Holy Spirit pricked a heart. Help them to realize that they're not part of the family of God. And if your Holy Spirit's convicting, then God, I, I pray that you'll give them courage to do what they know they should do and allow us to help them. Father, maybe some that need to make a decision about church membership. Maybe there's some that need to make a decision about serving. God, we have so many opportunities to reach so many people. Maybe there's some here with the gift of organization or the gift of encouragement or the gift of teaching, the gift of giving. God, we need those who have gifts to promote the glory of the cross in this community. And God, I want to thank you for each one that's here today. I want to thank you that they gave up their time. Some of them work all week long, camp jam, they're tired. And yet they've come today to worship. And God, I pray that you'll help them know that they did a job well done last week. And they did the right thing by worshiping today. God, we give this few moments to you now in Christ's name. Amen.